Heavenly Father, as we enter into this season, as we walk that descending staircase into the darkness with Jesus, into his humility, into his decreasing ministry on earth, all the way to the cross, Lord, may you humble our hearts. May you draw us in with our minds and our hearts into the seriousness, into the, the gravity, the weight of glory, the reality of the Son of God and his humiliation, his suffering, his sacrifice on the cross for us. Draw us in today. Change us little by little and, by, and in big chunks in our lives because we sat under the teaching of your scripture. Use your Holy Spirit to convict our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. My wife Shannon loves sunsets. She, anybody else love sunsets here? Of course you like sunsets. You're human. Sunsets are beautiful. But my wife really likes sunsets. She will, she's driving on the, on the road and there's a sunset coming. She will go out of her way to view, to get a good view of a sunset, much often to the moaning of our children who might be in the car who say, Mom, this sun does this every single day. It's really not that big of a deal. But of course, if you pay attention, you know that a sunset, every sunset's unique, isn't it? Every sunset has a different set of colors and hues, and the clouds look a little bit different. No sunset is exactly the same. And the most beautiful, the most stunning sunsets are the ones that have in view the darkest clouds, right? Because it's through the contrast of the dark clouds in the foregrounds that the beams of light come through in all their beauty and brilliance. And really, that's sort of the image of what we see here in Mark 14, 1 to 11. We see the dark clouds over the life of Jesus in, his, in the sunset of his earthly ministry. In the first couple of verses, we see the dark clouds of plotting to arrest Jesus, the scheming of the religious leaders looking for an opportunity to arrest him. As, the, as this passage closes in verse 11, we see the betrayal of Judas, his, his friend betraying his master. And in the middle of these dark clouds, in the middle of the scheming and the plotting, in the middle of the evil and the betrayal, is one of the most beautiful acts of worship that we see in the entire scriptures. And that is the anointing of Jesus, the Son of God. And so that's where we want to go in our passage today. Look at verse 3, where it says, while he was in Bethany, that is Jesus, was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. Now let's pause there. Here's a little bit of the setting. Jesus just finished preparing his disciples with what's called the Olivet Discourse. We spent several weeks looking at that in Mark chapter 13, where he's preparing them for the end of the temple, the destruction of the temple, and, and in fact, with a view to the end of time. And from there, Jesus goes over the Mount of Olives and travels to Bethany. Now, Bethany's about a mile and a half from the Temple Mount, over the Mount of Olives and down into the valley. It is sort of the camp where Jesus camped during his ministry during uh, when he was in Jerusalem. And here we see Jesus is invited 
to a dinner party of sorts at the home of Simon the leper. Now, why was he called Simon the leper? Why? Because he had leprosy. Good job. You guys are like Bible scholars out here. Yeah, because he had leprosy. Of course, he didn't have leprosy anymore. He must have been healed. And I would put my money, if I was a betting man, on Jesus as being the one who healed him. It makes sense that he would be throwing this party for Jesus because after all, if Jesus healed him, man, this is the least I can do but offer my hospitality. Now, we also know there was a few other folks at this party from John's account of this gospel, Mary, Martha, and their brother, Lazarus, who you might remember Jesus raised from the dead. And then we also know that Jesus' disciples were with him. So that's sort of the setting of this party. We continue in verse 3. A woman... John tells us this woman is Mary, the sister of Martha, came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and she poured the perfume on the head of Jesus. Now, John 12 also tells us this same Mary poured it on his feet and she was wiping his feet with her hair in an an unbelievable display of worship and love. The house would have been filled with this fragrance. This was a shocking scene, and I want to draw out some of the context to explain why it would have been so shocking. Nard was not a perfume you could just pick up on, you know, a Nordstrom counter, okay? This was a very a rare fragrance, a very expensive, aromatic fragrance. It was imported all the way to India, so it was difficult to get during those days, and it was an essential oil. Some of you big essential oil fans, you can cheer for that. You know, essential oils are in the Bible. That's pretty cool, huh? And so um, this amount of nard, we learn from Scripture and other sources, would have been worth at least a year's wages, which in our day would have been between forty dollars and $50,000. It's expensive stuff. I mean, Mary just had it sitting in her house on a shelf somewhere, this amount of money. But I suspect the monetary value of this alabaster jar paled in comparison to the emotional and relational value of it. This was very likely to be a family heirloom. No doubt this was her most valuable possession. An asset like this would have very likely been kept as a dowry on the occasion of uh, Mary's wedding. Um, portions of this would have been used in this time, small portions, uh, for the burial of a beloved family member or maybe even for Mary's own burial. And so here comes Mary holding essentially her future security, holding with her her future marriage prospects, her family expectation, her most prized possession, and quite literally pouring it away on the head and feet of Jesus Christ. One commentary says it like this. In essence, what Mary was saying is whatever hopes, dreams, plans, ambitions, convictions I have, I'm bringing them here to the feet of Jesus. And as she chooses, she not only pours out a little bit, which we might consider, well, that would have been reasonable. I mean, a little bit would have gone a long way. Mary breaks the jar off, which is just a way of saying, I'm coming with surrender and complete abandonment to Jesus. Wow. I mean, what a scene. I mean, if you were at this party, 
what would you have been thinking? If you don't see all this go down in front of you, what would you have done? Well, we know what the disciples did because Mark tells us, verse 4, some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Now, from our vantage point, we kind of get to be Monday morning quarterback, don't we? We get to look at this scene, and we get to say, man, I can't believe those disciples. You know, what, they don't get it. They're so mean. They're so, you know, harsh. Maybe they're even sexist toward this woman, right? But if, if I'm going to be honest with myself, maybe you honest with yourself, I suspect we would have been on team disciples instead of team Mary in this moment. Several years ago, I was at a wedding and now, as a pastor, you can imagine I go to a lot of weddings, part of a lot of weddings, and so don't be offended by this fact, but I don't remember uh, who this wedding was for. I don't remember the bride and groom. I don't remember who was there. I don't even remember if I officiated this wedding. I suppose I did. I don't remember whether I had the steak or the, you know, the, the tuna. I don't remember anything about that, but there's one thing I remember about this wedding that's seared in my memory. At the reception, the father of the bride got up and he gave a toast. And he gave a speech. I don't know what he said. But I do remember at the end, he brought a, a case of wine. And he took out the wine. He said, you know, this wine is, has special significance to me. But I can't think of a better occasion to break open this wine. And all of us get some of this wine as a toast to my daughter and her new husband. And I thought, oh, wow, how sweet of this father. What a touching moment. And so they brought a bottle of wine to every table, maybe about 12 tables in all. And we all poured a little bit, you know, cheers, drink a little bit, fine, whatever. And so I grabbed the wine bottle and I'm kind of looking at it. So I Google it. You know, I'm like, I wonder what, I wonder what this wine's about, you know? And so I Google it. And, um, and uh, you know, just out of curiosity about the wine and the year. It was French wine. It was from the early 90s. It was uh, Leroy Domaine uh, de Avonier, butchering that, I'm sure. <laughs> and when I saw the price, I almost spit my wine out across the table. <laughs> this was a rare wine, but it was even a rarer year. And the selling price averaged between 6000 and 10000 per bottle. Yeah, exactly. And I'm doing the quick math in my head, and I'm like, this is like $120,000 just wasted on unexpected people who are just eating and drinking and thinking nothing of it. I couldn't believe it. I did some more math, and I said, I just swallowed $1,000. Now listen, I don't come from money. My wife doesn't come from money. We got married young. We got married in a fire hall. We couldn't afford wine at our wedding. We, had, we toasted with, you know, Welch's sparkling grape juice. You know what I'm saying? That's how we, we roll, okay? And so for me, this is, this is extravagant. Now, maybe you're a romantic, and maybe you look at this as just this precious moment. But if I can be honest with you, what I was thinking was, what a complete waste of money. These people don't even appreciate it. These people have no idea. What are they thinking? 
This is crazy. I mean, if I, honestly, if I would have known this ahead of time when that bottle came out on the table, I would have grabbed it. I would have put it in my pocket. I would have gone out to the bar and grabbed the cheap stuff, and we would all toast with that. I mean, that's some 10 grand. That was a big deal. See, how much more so the disciples, who weren't at a wedding, they were just at a dinner party. And this fragrance wasn't just given a little bit to everybody. It was dumped on one person. And so they say, what a waste. Isn't this bad stewardship? I mean, isn't this an unreasonable allocation of resources? This could have been used more wisely. I mean, 50 grand, that could have gone a long way to alleviate poverty. Honestly, these are not bad questions. If, there's a big if, if you're talking about pouring it out on any other person at any other moment. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 6. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? Comes to her defense. She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. And here's Nate's commentary, and you ought to. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are 2,000 years later in a completely different culture, telling of her story as we proclaim the gospel just as Jesus said we would. What the disciples saw and what we might see, if we're honest with ourselves, is a terrestrial view of what happened here. We see an unreasonable and excessive waste. Jesus saw an appropriate and beautiful deed that displayed the glory of God in eternity. What the disciples considered wasteful, Jesus considered filled with sacred meaning and purpose. See, the disciples were so focused on the terrestrial. The disciples were so focused on the practical. Meanwhile, Mary and Jesus were focused on the heart of true worship. Now, what is the heart of worship? Is the heart of worship singing songs at church? Is it reading our Bible? Is it praying? Is it hearing a sermon? Is it giving money? All of these things are expressions of worship, but they're not the heart of worship. The heart of worship, we might say, is valuing or ascribing worth to someone or something above all else. Is treasuring something or someone above everything else in the world. Now, it's not only church folks that worship. Many people just think of worship as contained in a building like this or with people like us. Not so. As the famous author David Foster Wallace once said, everyone worships. The only choice we get is what we will worship. That's it. Everyone worships. Everyone bestows value. Everyone treasures something above all else. Now, how do we discover what we worship? Well, what is it that we give our time to? 
What do we give our resources to? What do we give our money to? Where do we find our identity and security in? Where, what do we give our passions to? What do we prioritize above all else? What is it that we are even willing to sacrifice for in order to have it? This is what we worship. This is what we truly worship. A few weeks ago, hundreds of my fellow Eagle fans <laughs> spent tens of thousands of dollars, some hundreds of thousands of dollars, to get a ticket to go to Arizona to sit in a stadium to watch our beloved Eagles royally screw up the game and blow the opportunity. But that's a side point. They spent a lot of money on this. Some of them, I heard on the radio stories of people that were mortgaging their homes, taking lo large loans out of their 401k, borrowing money, going into debt. I mean, doing, blowing through savings, doing crazy things just to get a ticket. And they were, oh yeah, this is, this is true eagle fandom. You know what this is? It's worship. It's what it is. It's worship. Many people today spent countless hours working on their bodies, staring at themselves in the mirror, constantly taking pictures of themselves at just the right angle, at just the right lighting, with just the right filters, posting them on social media, desperate to get likes in order to validate themselves. What is this? It's worship. And then there's the countless other run-of-the-mill kinds of worship, like worship of relationship or the idea of a relationship or worship of our kids or worship of a career or our possessions or of a cause or a political group or security or experiences or a rush that we get through a substance and on and on the list goes. See, our hearts are made to worship. This is knit into our very souls. We can't help but to worship. Now, why do we worship what we worship? Why do we consider something worthy and valuable? Why do we treasure? Why would we be willing to give up our time and our resources and our energy and our passion, even sacrifice in order to have something? Well, the answer I believe, I would submit to you, is that we worship whatever we believe will give us what our hearts desire most, which is love. We worship what we think will love us. Love in the form of acceptance, love in the form of validation or value or worth, love in the form of forgiveness, love in the form of meaning or comfort or security. We worship what we think will love us, what we think will fill us. Now here's the question that I want us to consider for a few minutes. What was it about Jesus that so compelled Mary to worship him in such an extravagant way? Why would she give up her most valuable possession? I mean, why would she give up her potential future hopes and dreams, even willing to be criticized and put down by these disciples? I believe the answer come to us, comes to us in a simple and profound verse in 1 John 
4.19. We love him because, friends, he first loved us. That's it. We love him because he first loved us. Mary's heart grasped the infinite worth of being loved by Jesus. Now, how had Jesus loved Mary? Oh, friends, in the same way that Jesus loved the adulterous woman who stood condemned by her accusers, whom Jesus defended and accepted. The same way that he loved Matthew, the tax collector, who everyone hated and rejected, but Jesus called as a friend and a disciple. The same way that he loved Peter, who denied him and even abandoned him, who Jesus forgave and restored to ministry. The same way that he loved Simon the leper, who everyone ignored, did not look at, went the other way, considered condemned by God, who Jesus looked in the eyes and touched and healed and dined with. Friends, the same way that Jesus loves every man, woman, or child who allow, allow themselves to be loved by him. Jesus opens his arms wide. He calls us, he offers us what the world cannot give, will not give. A supernatural, unconditional, eternal love, an acceptance that restores worth, that restores human dignity, that forgives to the very core, that heals our deepest wounds, that brings us into a life of meaning. And his arms are always open wide. His arms are open, always open wide like the prodigal son with the father, no matter how or what they do. See, his, life, his love, if you can even fathom it, is a love that's not based on any conditions, no, no performance, no amount of good things that we've done. It's not based on a what have you done for me lately kind of love. A love that a you in no way can diminish. It is a supernatural unconditional love that goes all the way to the wood of a cross for you and me. That's how he loved Mary. And that's how he loves you and me. Now, I realize that for some of us, we can barely even begin to get our minds and our hearts around this concept of unconditional love. And the reason for some of us I know is because you have seen very little, if at all, this kind of love model in your life from other human beings. Many of you only know the love that you get when you perform well. Many of you only know the love that you get, the attention, the acceptance you get when you do the right thing, when you behave, when you produce when you earn it in some way. Maybe some of you only know the love when it's, when it's when you're being used by others. Some of us have never experienced this kind of love from others. And some of us have accepted cheap counterfeits of this love. We can barely even get our, our eyes and our arms around it. I want, you to, I want to tell you about a dear friend of mine who grew up with an absentee father and a really harsh, awful mother. He would tell me how growing up, if he would make a mistake or he would mess up, his mother would just stop speaking to him. And not just for short periods of time, like days on end, wouldn't even look him in the eye. She acted as if he didn't exist. She would send messages through the siblings over to him. 
She would often belittle and criticize him in front of other people, make him feel nothing, often tell him that he, he, she was so disappointed in him and that he was never going to amount to anything. She, he never once heard from his mother's lips, I love you or I'm proud of you. Some of you know what that feels like. And so he grew to hate his mother. He grew to despise his mother. He went far away from her. He shut himself off to love, hardened his heart. Would often talk about in those days, he was like an island unto himself with a huge moat and a drawbridge raised up. No one was going to get to his heart to hurt him again. And it made him a cold person. He would hide behind a big personality. He would distance himself. He'd numb himself with drugs and alcohol at times. And he was going to prove himself, prove to himself and to his mother that he was worth something. And so he set out to accomplish great things. When college one day, he was walking across a campus. And a street evangelist, a campus preacher, got his attention and told him for the first time, that there was someone who loved him unconditionally, who accepted him, who forgave him, and even was willing to go to the cross to demonstrate that love, to forgive his sins. And that person was Jesus Christ. And he scoffed at it. He was angry about it. He made fun of the guy. But the guy just kept saying, it's okay. Just consider that how much God loves you. Consider how much Jesus loves you. And you could see, just looking at his eyes, this guy really believed it. This guy actually believed it and cared for him. And he'd see him day by day. And little by little, it began to work on his heart. And one day he went up to this street preacher. And uh, the preacher challenged him to read the Gospel of John. And he gave him a Bible. And so my friend started reading it. And more and more he read and he encountered in the pages this Jesus that he talked about and this love of Jesus and this power of Jesus and how utterly unique this Jesus was in the history of humanity. Through the Holy Spirit's power, he began to soften his heart. And he was reading, continuing to go through John. After he finished John, he went to, back to Matthew and he started reading Matthew. And he got to Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28 said this, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And he said it was in that moment, it was as if Jesus embraced him, just put his arms around him and hugged him and said, I love you, my son. I love you, my son. The words that his soul longed to hear. It was in that moment he gave his life to Jesus. He surrendered himself to Jesus. And Jesus began to change this man's heart. From the inside out, he began to transform him, his hard heart, into a soft heart. He began, Jesus began to pour out his love into him and his hatred from his mother, something he thought he would take to his grave, began to be turned into compassion. Began to surrender his future to whatever God wanted him to do. This friend of mine was also my mentor, my former pastor at McLean Bible Church, Lon Solomon. You see, on this, that was Lon in college <laughs> when he met the street preacher. And God has continued to use this man in, in, in incredible ways over the last 50 years, transforming tens of thousands of 
people's lives through that same gospel message that was preached to him, that same love that captured and transformed him. And wouldn't you know it, after 20 years of reconciling with his mother, of loving his mother, of praying for his mother, of sharing the gospel with her, she came to Christ too, and her life transformed. This is the power of unconditional, eternal love. We love him because he first loved us. And Lon's story is not unique. It's, it's extreme. It's powerful. But it's not unique because that's my story. And it was Mary's story. And it was Lazarus's story. And it was the story of everybody, every character in the Bible that comes to Jesus. And it's many of your stories as well. Because the true love of Jesus Christ expels from our hearts anything that we might worship in its place. When we really allow it to, that's what it does. That's how powerful it is. This is the power of infinitely unconditional love if we only allow our hearts to grasp it. And the one thing as a pastor I wish I could do, I can't, but the one thing I wish I could do is make you experience it yourself. I can't. I can describe it. I can tell stories about it. I can pray for it. I can read the scriptures and, and try to bring them to life, but only the Holy Spirit can do it. I long for you to know that love that I've known that's changed my love, life that's changed so many others' lives. And it's why now, when I think back to that wedding reception, and I think about what that father did, I'm convicted about how practical I was, how scoffing I was at this moment. Because now when I see it, I see the display of the love of Jesus Christ in the gospel. The father who loved his daughter so much, he didn't even think it was a sacrifice to be extravagant, to honor his daughter. How much more did Jesus willingly sacrifice himself in order to love us? Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. What was the joy of Jesus in going to the cross? The joy, friends, was the very thought, the very notion that in his sacrifice, in taking the sins of every single one of us on himself, he could make sons and daughters of God beloved forever. That was his great joy. Do you know this love of God, friends? Do you love him because he first loved us? Do you know the infinite worth of being loved by Jesus like Mary did? Has this grasped your heart, making you so secure in his love, making you so fulfilled in his love, so filled with dignity and worth and meaning by his love, that you would willingly give up whatever is in your life for him, to follow him like Mary did? Or are you still trying to grip something, some kind of counterfeit, something that's a man-made, something that gets taken from us, that can never fill us, wasn't meant to, that can't hold the weight of our worship. Maybe that means coming to Jesus for the first time. And what a joy it would be if you did, accepting his sacrifice, his forgiveness for your sins. Or maybe Jesus is calling you to do something extravagant like Mary. Maybe he's calling you to give up something of great worth that, you're, that has become an idol if you're honest with yourself. He wants you to walk away with, away from, and, and give to him. Or 
Maybe he just wants to fill you with his love in ways that slowly loosen the grip that you have on this life and allow it to begin to fade away. A few weeks ago, I was at the bedside of a member of our church, Sam Workman. And I was at his bedside because he was in his final hours of life. And Sam couldn't talk much at that point. But I asked Sam, do you have a favorite song, a favorite hymn, thinking, well, maybe we could sing it at his funeral, which was yesterday. And he couldn't really get much, he couldn't get anything out, but he just laid his head back and he closed his eyes and he just said, turn your eyes to Jesus. And I said, turn your eyes upon Jesus and he goes like this. It was a powerful moment. We were able to sing that song at the end of the service. And I wonder whether that was Sam's favorite song or if in that moment, that was exactly what Sam was doing. He was turning his eyes upon Jesus. He was looking full into his wonderful face. And the things of this world grew strangely dim in the light of his glory grace. He's worth everything. He's worth everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that in ourselves we are so prone to worship We're so prone to worship things that are man-made, things that were never meant to hold the weight of our worship. Forgive me, Father, for the times where I turn my eyes upon things in this world and you grow strangely dim. Fill my heart and my mind's eye with Jesus that I might look at the author and the perfecter of my faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. I pray that if there's anyone here that has never turned their eyes towards you for salvation, turn their eyes towards you for forgiveness, for meaning, for purpose, for security, that today might even be the day that they do that. They might grasp the infinite love of Jesus. You might even say a simple prayer like this. Jesus, I run into your arms. I believe that you forgave me of my sins. You died on the cross for me. You rose from the dead to show that you conquer the grave on that Easter Sunday. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for loving me first and help me to love you with my life. Remove anything from my life that might be competing with worship to you. A simple prayer like that, if it's from your heart, know that it, can, it will transform you forever. You, you can be breathing eternally, assured that you will be with him forever. Because the Bible says that if we call upon the name of the Lord, we will be saved. 
And if that's you, I want to encourage you to write that on a connection card so that we can follow up with you. You can turn it to the back of that connection card and check the box that says you've made a relationship with the Lord. We'd love to be able to follow up with you. And for Father, for all of those that are here that are already know your love, help us to turn our eyes towards you and allow the things of this world that compete with you to grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.